You're listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka, bringing you interesting conversations about careers in communications. Today I'm talking with Rod Cartwright. Rod has a 25-year PR agency career and advises on reputation, crisis preparedness and resilience. This episode is about what communicators go through behind the scenes during a global news event. Hi, Rod. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Hi there. Great to be here. So I always start by asking a couple of questions which give you a chance to introduce yourself. So let's dive into that. First of all, give me your elevator pitch. How do you describe what you do to strangers? So, Vicky, I'm an independent advisor who works with in-house teams, in-house communication teams, agencies and senior leaders to basically do three things. One is to improve their communication confidence. Secondly, to improve their organisational resilience. And thirdly, as a result of those two things, to enhance their business performance. And can you give me a potted history of your career in just a few sentences? So, yeah, I, I went um, I went independent um, at the end of last year, having spent 25 years holding um, leadership positions in UK, European and global public relations firms. A few examples of that is that I was the global partner and global corporate practice director at Ketchum during my decade there. I ran an agency called Text 100, now Archetype, across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And I spent 10 years holding UK board positions at Hill and Norton Strategies and GCI, having spent the first seven or eight years of my career as a public affairs and government relations expert. An impressive career. Can you give me a few examples of the global news events that you've worked on? That's the subject that we're going to cover today. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean... It, Unsurprisingly, having worked in corporate reputation and crisis, I spend a lot of my time working on live events, but also working on preparing clients for what happens when the PR balloon goes up, so to speak. I suppose most notable in terms of global news events, and this truly was global, you'll remember in 2014, um, in March of that year, Malaysia Airlines had a plane flight MH370 go missing. And I was one of a team of three from the agency I was at flown into Kuala Lumpur and spent six weeks advising the chairman, the CEO, the legal counsel and the board on communications around MH370 and then subsequently on the restructuring of the airline later that year. So that's probably as global as it gets and as intense a communications experience as I I may ever have. That must have been a very unique situation because no one actually knew what happened to MH370, did they? Indeed, and, and absolutely. I describe that as an impossible privilege. By that, I mean that, that people go through entire careers without the privilege of working on something that acute and that, in, that challenging. But at the same time, communicating when you have no information and when the currency of a communicator is information was one of the most difficult things bordering on the impossible at times. Can you describe to to me what was actually happening day to day during that crisis for you? 
Absolutely. Well, I, I think the key thing was that we were working as a team. If there's any one lesson that I drew from that experience, that both in terms of the agency team and with the client, we were at our best when we were working together. And that sounds obvious and, and truistic, perhaps, but the reality is, unless we worked as a team, things were not as good as when we did. On a day-to-day -day basis, it was hugely varied. A lot of it was planning and preparing for a range of different potential scenarios. We had a constant scenario log of, of all the most possible scenarios and ensuring that we were prepared as well as we could be with materials and content and training for each of those, while at the same time, on a daily basis, working out which of the hundreds of frankly bizarre conspiracy theories we were not going to add to our list. So it was partly preparedness training and content. It was partly reacting in the moment to the news flow and advising our clients on an hour by hour, at times minute by minute basis, on how to respond or not respond to what was going on. So were you advising on the communications to the media as well as to the families? Yes. I mean, I, I think without going into minute detail, what is poorly understood is that in the event of an aviation disaster, be it a plane tragically crashing or going missing, the responsibility for the search and rescue or the search and recovery sits with the government of where the, the airline is based and also the government of where the, the incident has happened or might have happened. So an awful lot of the communication flow was actually controlled by the government and the military. The airline's primary responsibility, and this was our North Star, was to the next of kin, to the families. So although inevitably we ended up um, having discussions with the media, invariably our focus was acutely on care for those families as opposed to taking on the responsibility for the overall search, which was not ultimately down to the airline, it was down to the sovereign governments involved. Now, we're currently going through a very big crisis in this country and all around the world, the COVID-19 pandemic. How do you think the government is handling communications around this crisis and what impact is that having? Well, if you mean the UK government, it's, it's a difficult question to answer without being somewhat partisan. I, I worked for the Labour Party in 1997, but trying to set aside any political bias, I think you, you simply need to look at the outcomes of the communication. And I think, you know, my fear is that, you know, in 20, 50, 100 years time, when our grandchildren are studying the 2020 pandemic in their history books, there'll be at least one chapter dedicated tragically to the lives lost as a result of poor communication. I mean, you know, they say famously, it's PR, not ER. But the reality is that with COVID-19, PR can be ER. And I think that if you look at the, the outcomes set against those of countries like New Zealand, countries like Denmark and Iceland and Taiwan and Germany, 
you see a very different approach operationally. You see a much clearer and more robust approach to communications. And I believe you therefore see a very different set of outcomes in terms of infections, hospitalizations and tragically deaths. So if I, I'm not going to score, I was about to score the government marks out of 10, I won't do that. I will only say when history looks back, I do not believe that the way in which the government has communicated in terms of clarity, consistency and humanity will go down as one of the greatest periods of British government. I'm being deeply, deeply diplomatic in my answer. Thank you. And what do you think has gone so wrong? Is it a case of the communicators not being involved early enough or is it a lack of planning? It's very hard to say without having been on the inside. And I'm always wary of casting judgment on the detail unless I'm armed with the detailed facts. I do think that from the outside and, and certainly many communications Facebook groups I'm on, the consensus is that the challenges have been around consistency, around clarity of messaging. Dare I say it, there is the question of do as I say, not as I do. I think, again, when we look back on this period in our country's history, that the Dominic Cummings famous trip to the northeast and to Barnard Castle, I view as a fundamental problem in that it damaged already fragile trust almost irrevocably. And I do think that if compliance has dropped and if there is confusion, it's because people are railing against that idea. Well, it's if it's okay for the Prime Minister's chief advisor to do, then why do I need to obey the rules? So I, I do think that the combination of inconsistent and poor messaging and do as I say, not as I do, have combined to undermine trust and therefore compliance. What did you think of Dominic Cummings' press conference in the Rose Garden? I found it deeply strange that it happened in the first place, particularly as in retrospect, he's now either walked or been let go. The idea that any single advisor unelected was of such importance that they got their own airing, I just found very strange. And I think it merely went to compound the fact that people were thinking, why does he get off the hook? Why is there one rule for some and another rule for others? Or rather, if there is a rule for everyone, why does someone get let off the hook by dint of being close to the prime minister? I think that brings us neatly onto a conversation about saying sorry. And I think we've seen a lot of failures recently, a lot of non-apologies. Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, Priti Patel uh, saying, I'm paraphrasing, but saying something along the lines of, I'm sorry if you feel that way. I just wonder if you think there's any value in those sorts of non-apologies. I think it's almost perversely better not to apologise than to do a partial non apology, something that's clearly not heartfelt. I mean, I, I discovered this, I'm, I'm 20 years married now, and I learned many years ago that saying, I'm sorry, if you feel like that is not the greatest way to go in any relationship, because in a way, it shows no contrition, no admission that something has gone wrong and puts 
the onus back on the audience. I mean, the, the question of, sorry, if I had a pound for every time I'd had a discussion in the war room with a legal team about saying, sorry, we wouldn't be sitting here recording this podcast now. And I think that what I constantly say in crisis situations is there is a sizable and substantive difference between showing sorrow and remorse that something has happened and saying sorry for having caused it. Because lawyers will say saying sorry is an admission of liability. It's not. It is simply showing human compassion. And when I was at Ketchum, we, we, we did an annual global study on the relationship between leadership and communication. And one of the findings specific to reputational crises is that while people want you to show empathy, they want you to then do something about it. So we coined the phrase operationalizing empathy, because people have two reactions. One is, are they a human being and do they care? Tick, fantastic. Now, what are they going to actually do about it? Because I think that even a heartfelt apology without follow-up can look like warm words, but a well-executed crisis plan without humanity and humility looks risks looking um, somewhat cold-hearted and functional. Have you ever had to walk away from a client who wouldn't take your advice? I have once and only once been asked to leave an account for the simple reason that the client didn't like the advice I was giving. A colleague in in New York who was one of my my colleagues on the Malaysian um, assignment said, gosh, only one, I view it as a badge of honour to be removed from accounts. I wouldn't take it that far, but I do think you have to have the courage of your convictions as an advisor and you have to be willing to give, you know, you have to be willing to speak truth to power, even if that is not what the client wishes to hear. There's always balance. And the fact that there's only been one instance makes me believe either I've not spoken enough truth or I've got the balance right. But I, I do think there is a balance between robust, honest, best advice and overbaking it to the extent that you you tip into personal views and not advice based on the client's needs. Can you tell me a bit about your work on the PRCA's Global COVID-19 Task Force? And can you start by explaining what the PRCA is, please? Yes, so the PRCA is the Public Relations and Communications Association. Um, It's one of the two industry bodies in the UK. The, The task force was formed under the chairmanship of Tony Langham of Lansons, essentially to provide support and advice for communicators at all levels during the COVID-19 pandemic. So there were a number of things that we did. One was there was a free advisory service where we put out for volunteers. I think we got nearly 150 volunteers. We did, I think, upwards of 40 or 50 free advisory sessions. There was also a swathe of webinars on, on varying issues relating to the pandemic. I chaired a number of those 
and also ran a number of webinars. Uh, I was also deputy chair of the task force. So it was a pretty important way of unifying the industry around the around the pandemic. There's also been latterly, uh, Tony Langham led a global crowdsourced exercise seeking views on how to recover fast from the pandemic. And I'm also chairing a global initiative called the COVID-19 Communication Observatory, where we are uh, drawing together over time from around the world examples of what we're calling communications excellence and communication missteps as a way of learning lessons from the good, bad and ugly of comms during the COVID era and how that informs practice moving forward. And we've unified every single global industry body behind that initiative and they're all represented on on a steering group. Fantastic. So is the, is the task force still still doing its work? The PRCA task force ha- has wound up. We always took the view that it needed to be available when it was most needed. So, um, you know, having having done its main work, it's it's wound up, if you like, as an institution. But with initiatives like the observatory, the spirit of the task force continues through, again, in that spirit of, of unifying collaboration. And how much of the consultancy work that you're doing now is, is COVID-related? Um, I think it, it it varies month to month, to be honest. I think a lot of the consultancy work I get is around helping organisations, particularly medium-sized organisations, to deal with some of the challenges of COVID, uh, both practically and reputationally. Also, because as I, as as you know, I have I focus a lot of my work on preparedness. I'm focused now as much on how people prepare for the challenges of 2021 as they deal with the here and now, because I I genuinely believe that people can always be better prepared. And I've actually, if you'll forgive the little advert, um, I've developed a specific crisis preparedness model called Match Fit, designed for the sort of expectation tsunami that's been unlocked by COVID, but also informed by crisis preparedness best practice, essentially packaging everything I've done into a single model. So Rod, at the end of all of my episodes, I ask uh, the same questions of everyone. So I'm going to start with, what would you like to be remembered for? In a way, I'm quite unambitious in answering that question. Partly, I'd like to be remembered as, frankly, a decent colleague and a decent boss who really helped people progress their careers. And I'd also like to be remembered as someone who positively contributed to the advancement of what we do as communicators, be that through all the thought leadership I've done over the years, new ways of approaching comms challenges like the match fit model that I've built, or my contributions to ethics and regulation through all my work with the PRCA over the years, for example, sitting on the Professional Practices Committee for the Bell Pottinger Affair and also chairing the Public Affairs Committee for a decade. So I suppose being decent, moving things along, 
and giving back. And if you could work with someone from history on their PR and communications, who would that be? Honestly, this is one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked. And I realise it's being it's like being asked, what's your favourite film ever? Or what's the one disc that you would take with you to the desert island on desert island discs? And I nearly, I nearly struck out. I nearly couldn't think of anything. I, I, I was tempted to go for the sort of safe havens of a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi or a Mandela. But I realised, if anything, it's more a category. It's people who struggled to make their case either by dint of the way that they were or their environment. So rather oddly, Alan Turing came to mind. What advice would you give to someone just starting their comms career or looking for their first communications opportunity? I think to take those in turn, for getting onto the ladder in the first place, I think you have to be quite ballsy and you have to be able, you have to get noticed. I remember when I I'd done an internship up in Edinburgh where I was brought up and went back after university. And I wrote to every public affairs company in London and over my CV, I put a cover sheet in 56 font with the words, please just take five minutes to read and consider this. And two of the four interviews I got, one of which led to my job, they said, we quite like the fact that you weren't just sending us your CV. So I think getting noticed is one. I think once you're in, there are a couple of great pieces of advice I've always carried carried with me. One is my very first boss in London. When I left, he said, one piece of advice, actively seek to learn one thing from one person every single day and it became almost a habit and it's one of the most powerful habits I've ever formed. The other from experience is surprising a colleague or a boss by doing something that they've not asked you to do and that makes their life easier. I love those. That's great. It's funny how these little nuggets we take from our first bosses. I've got I've got a few of those in my head as well. Absolutely. What predictions do you have for the future of communications? Well, I'm actually, you know, for all of the challenges of global public health and the economy, I'm actually rather optimistic about the future for communication. If, and I stress if, we take the opportunity that's been presented to us. You know, people have said to me that comms was undervalued before COVID. I I just don't agree. I think that what COVID has done, as with so many dynamics, is to accelerate an awareness of the huge strategic and organisational value of PR and comms, you know, as a fundamental driver of an organization's most trusted relationships, as a critical source of trust and credibility and permission, a massively powerful source of positive business and social influence, and a really important driver of positive human outcomes, organizational outcomes, and societal outcomes. So I think our time has come, but we need to be prepared to be more focused than ever on measurable outcomes. We need to be more focused than ever on talking the language of business, uh, not the language of comms. And we've got to keep matching our instincts and our experience with models and methodologies particularly as the management consultancies start to impinge on our turf. So let's end on a lighter note. Tell me what is the most ridiculous or embarrassing thing you've done in the name of communications? 
That is a great question. I think the challenge I face in answering it is there are just too many to pick one. So I think the example I'd give is when I left a former agency, my team as a leaving gift gave me what they, they'd called the little book of rodisms, which started with a dictionary definition of a rodism, which is saying precisely the wrong thing to exactly the wrong person at just the wrong time, dot, 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 but just about getting away with it. So um, I think that probably gives you a flavor for a career long battle with putting my foot in it and somehow yet managing not to. Well, well done for getting away with it. Thank Thank you. you so much. Thanks so much, Rod. It was really great to talk to you. You've been listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. If you'd like to get hold of me, I'm on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook with the handle The DSTM Podcast. And I'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give me some stars or leave me a review. And don't forget to subscribe for more interesting conversations about careers and communications. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.